You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Not so distant future on a planet called Earth. It's Underoos. Star Wars Boba Fett is here. That means Darth Vader's always near. C3PO has lots of style. And R2D2 just makes me smile. Star Wars Underoos are here, yeah! Something out of sight in underwear. Oh, don't be so ridiculous, R2. Underoos are for Earthlings. everybody and welcome once again to Geekfest Rants. My name is Carlos Perón and today we are going to be reviewing a Star Wars book called Star Wars Memories by Craig Miller. Craig Miller was the director of fan relations, most notably the guy who ran the Star Wars fan club when it first started. I just finished reading the book, it's awesome, and I'll give you guys all the highlights from that book and then we'll follow that up with our poster of the month, which is Clash of the Titans, the 1981 original version of Clash of the Titans. One of my many favorite, favorite Ray Harryhausen films. Here we're going to look at the poster that I remember, the poster that I recently bought reprinted. And we'll talk about its background and some of the other art-related items with Clash of the Titans that are you know, a little bit forgotten. So let's start it off with Star Wars Memories. Plato, Mirada, You must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A reader? A reader. A reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. I just finished reading a book, a, a Star Wars book, a making of Star Wars book, one of my go-to favorite kinds. And it's funny because these days, every now and then, you'll get another point of view, if you will, of the making of Star Wars or things having to do with Star Wars. We didn't used to have this many books back then, but now, you know, you might get one from the one of the editors of Star Wars or a special effects person or a promotion person or, you know, all different types of people that give you access to just a different view, you know, of Star Wars. And this particular book that I just finished reading is called Star Wars Memories by Craig Miller. Now, believe it or not, I was not too familiar with Craig Miller. And after reading the book, it kind of makes sense why. Craig Miller was the first director of fan relations for Star Wars. What, during the last, uh, I don't know how many years, uh, 20 years or so, up until four or five years ago, 
Steven Sanswick used to do. He, you know, he became a character onto himself because of his um, Star Wars museum that he runs even after leaving Lucasfilm. We're kind of more used to that kind of a role being somebody who's in the forefront, who almost becomes a character on itself. Aside from the, the, the film or the television show or whatever merchandising you're dealing with, he also became a, sort of like a personality. The only other noticeable fan club president that I could remember is Dan Matson, who also was a pretty well-known at the time president. He also was involved in, I think, the Star Trek fan club, I think, too. But for a period of time, he was uh, he was involved in the Star Wars side of the fan club, uh, I think right around the time where Sansweet kind of started out. So, you know, I think by that point, they, the job descriptions might have been split so that fan relations would go one direction and fan club would go the other direction. But yeah, that was that was different back then. But back then, uh, with their first fan-related, you know, fan club-related person, Craig Miller, it was a different role altogether. I mean, again, just like anything else, you've heard the story a million times. How back then, they were writing the book. They were inventing the format in terms of you know, you, you had people that marketed, you know, for films that did promotion, but the promotion was very wide and tried to get as many people with one shot as possible. But with Star Wars, they were trying to target very specific people. Granted, yes, you do want the general audience, but they also kind of realized, and this is all through Charlie Lippincott, which I've talked about many, many times before. The idea was to try to target especially young people, uh, people that go to conventions. This is back when the first kind of conventions, the Comic-Con type of conventions, that back then there were a lot more smaller ones, more comic book focused, as opposed to Comic-Con now is not exclusively, if at all, about comic books. It's about the media surrounding the comic books and the television shows and stuff like that. It is a monster, what Comic-Con is now. Back then, the conventions were a little smaller, a little more manageable, a little more accessible. Not the, you know, Broadway presentations that they kind of turned into with the tens of thousands of attendants, you know, filing in and out every day that you get now. Now, conventions are kind of like, you know, the, the big ones I'm talking about. It's like the difference between going to Disney and going to a birthday party <laughs> in terms of how these things have grown it's just amazing but anyway that was the plan back then was to let's see if we can target some of these individual conventions to see if we can kind of generate the interest and try to reach those people you know the people that are watching star trek the people that are into sci-fi writers fantasy all that kind of stuff let's see if we can kind of target them and that is how Lippincott kind of started going around these conventions with his slideshow and his Macquarie paintings, you know, all that kind of stuff to try to generate some some interest. Well, as he was doing that, he hired a guy who was more or less pretty much out of college, fresh out of college. He was a big comic book fan, uh, sci-fi fan, but he was kind of like a real bona fide nerd, <laughs> geek back then. Charlie was more of a publicity guy. You know what I mean? He was, he liked uh, comic books, but he wasn't a comic book nerd. He was, Charlie was more into like music and that sort of thing. I mean, even up to 
his passing, I remember he would talk about, you know, his music collection, that the thousands of albums that he that he had, you know, and I can I can relate to that kind of obsession, you know, when you are into something that you you go way overboard in how many of these things that you collect and they kind of stay with you throughout all your moves, wherever you go, they, that that junk just kind of follows you around everywhere you go. But with somebody like Craig Miller, he had somebody who was he was one of them. You know what I mean? He was one of the type of people that he was trying to target exclusively and particularly. So you could almost see it as an interpreter in terms of that sort of thing. So Miller was able to um, work as a consultant for a while. And this is all while Star Wars is being shot. And he eventually ended up working full time. His job expanded and grew and grew and grew up until after the release of Empire Strikes Back. At that point, he kind of branched off to do something else. So Miller's involvement with Star Wars is pretty much from the beginning of production, let's say, to the end of Empire Strikes Back. And that is probably why I wasn't too familiar with him, because when I came to the States to stay, this is back in December of 79, probably, November, December of 79, something like that, Empire was already pretty much done in terms of shooting and they were just in post-production at this point and it was about to come out that summer which is when I saw it and once I realized and I, and it's really hard to remember once I realized that this Empire Strikes Back thing was the same thing that I had seen a number of years ago in a different country it is the same thing that when I had visited the states back in I don't know, 78, maybe? I had purchased, it has to be 78, I had purchased a whole bunch of action figures that I took with me. You know, the first 12, I think it was, that I bought. Uh, and and I, brought, I brought back to Uruguay with me. And then I brought back to the States when I came to stay. That connection was made. It's like, wait a minute, you mean there's more of this? This thing that I love, that I saw a little over a year ago? Because remember... Star Wars came out in 78 in Uruguay. I came to visit the States maybe that summer, went back to Uruguay with my toys, returned to the States in 79. Wow, that is a very short period of time to be, you know, hit with Star Wars all at once. So, yeah, so I'm back here and I remember, I remember, I don't know if it was a commercial, but I do specifically remember one memory of, I'm, I'm in school, I'm in grade school. I don't know, fourth grade, I think it was, or something like that. And a kid had the uh, a magazine, I think. One of those movie magazines that they used to sell. I mean, I probably have a copy of it somewhere around here. They actually used to sell them not only at candy stores, but at the movie theater, I remember. Sometimes they used to sell the a magazine of the movie you're about to watch, especially with something Star Wars related. And... I remember looking at these pictures and going, yeah, that looks like that guy, and this looks like this guy, and this and that. So all those connections were being made. And once I saw Empire, forget it. I was back in the in the mix. I was back in Star Wars mode, in insane Star Wars mode, and trying to get everything associated with it, seeing the action figures in the store, in the toy store, imagining, you know, you all you saw was a picture, and you saw the action figure and a picture of the character, a snapshot, and then you try to imagine, yeah, those look like the original characters, but it looks like this guy's wearing like a snow outfit, and it's like, what does that mean? And there's a stormtrooper looking guy, but 
he looks different. He's got this white thing on his face. You know, he looks a little different. He's kind of like a little skirt type of thing. It's like, what is this? It was amazing for a kid my age, 10 years old, just losing his mind over this Star Wars thing. Again, it all goes back to action figures for me. But my point is that not until that time was I then aware, and it might have been through Starlog, everything for me was Starlog. It might have been through Starlog that there was a fan club. And then I joined the fan club and then I tried you know, I bought as much stuff as I could from the fan club and gotten this and this and the other, and boom, bam, beam. You know, the fan club kits and all that stuff. But never did I really pay attention to who was this person running this fan club. It never really popped. And I say it, as I explained earlier, in the manner that it would pop now. When Sansuite was part of the fan relations and the fan club, I imagine, must have been a, a notch a couple of notches below him, if it even existed back then, because I think by by the time Sansweet might have been involved, it was already just a, a, a magazine. It might have been the Star Wars Insider or whatever the hell it was called back then. I even forget. I stayed with it for a very long time, I remember, uh, from Bantha Tracks to the Lucasfilm magazine or something like that, and then the Star Wars Insider. It went through a whole bunch of different phases, and then when Sansweet got involved, like I said, he was more of a personality. But back then, I had no clue who Craig Miller was. Well, he put together this book. And one of the things about the book that I enjoy, and it's a good idea he did it this way, is that he tries to kind of steer away as much as possible from the stories that we already know. We already know how the effects were done. We already know how some of the actors got the parts. We already know the ins and outs of Lucas in terms of what he meant by this or what he meant by that, you know, that kind of stuff. So in his book, it's a series of short stories uh, having to do with his association with Star Wars in more or less in, in chronological order from his early involvement to his departure. Now, as I mentioned earlier, his title was Director of Fan Relations, but he was also involved in coming up with the press kits for the movie. He was a publicist because he was involved in the publicity part. He was a writer also for some of that publicity, public relations kind of branch of the movie. And it's funny because for him to try to trace exactly how he got to that point, he kind of credits a long time ago when he was about 13 years old. He Again, he's a big sci-fi fan. And he writes a, a letter to Ray Bradbury asking him for do an interview for a, I think it's a fanzine or a magazine or something that he was involved with. And as a result of that interview, one of the things that Bradbury told him in order to get involved, more involved in sci-fi and that kind of thing, was to join a sci-fi club. Because then you would have connections with people that are kind of like in that sort of thing. And there was the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society that ran conventions. So he got involved with that, and that's how he started going to all these conventions. So that is one of the ways how he ended up, I guess, getting to know Lippincott and that sort of thing. And that kind of got him, you know, in. One of the things also that was very interesting that I found in the book was that when they were talking about Star Wars in terms of not knowing how successful it would be, like you hear that a million times, that summer for Fox, there were two sci-fi films, believe it or not, not only Star Wars, but there was a movie called Damnation Alley. And apparently Damnation Alley had a lot of production problems and ended up getting pushed to October, especially once they realized what Star Wars was. Like the early uh, <laughs> reactions they were getting was like, oh my God, clear the slate, get this, get this stupid movie out of the way so we can put Star Wars on. So... 
that's one of these movies that I guess you know I've I watched it. It's it's pretty cheesy. It's pretty. Uh, George Pappard is in it actually. But uh, you should guys, uh, if you have a chance, watch it because it, it's really amazing the quality of these two films side by side coming out at the same time, and uh, what a difference you have in terms of one being a mega blockbuster and the other one just kind of forgotten, you know, <laughs> because Star Wars just destroyed everything. There was a period also he talks about where while they're shooting Star Wars, they need more money and they can't get the money. (laughs) So what Lucas does is he sells ILM for a brief period of time to Fox for a million dollars with the understanding that if the movie is successful, he'll just buy it right back. Uh, So for a brief period of time, ILM was owned by Fox. Lucas then kind of formed a temporary company called MLI, which is ILM backwards. And when the money started coming in, boom, they reversed it right away. So ILM went back to Lucasfilm. You know, Fox got their money back. But for a very brief period of time, you had ILM and MLI existing in the same universe, which is bizarre thing. Again, I don't know if this has something to do with taxes or business laws or I don't know, but there was there, there were some very creative uh, accounting going on back then, which that's a whole other book that doesn't exist right now. One of the things that they were also trying to shoot for as far as publicity is they wanted to have Star Wars on the front page of Time Magazine when it premiered. Because of the early buzz of how popular this movie was going to be, they thought they had a pretty good chance, and they did lock in Time Magazine. Be you know having a front cover. Time Magazine always ended up having many Star Wars front covers. You know with the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and all these other stuff. But they had it planned. But then the I believe what happened was the right as the magazine was going to go into the presses, there was a breaking news story from Israel, a story having to do with the Israeli election. You know somebody was elected, and it was a big deal. And it bumped Star Wars from the front page. So they ended up having a Star Wars banner in the corner announcing how, you know, incredibly successful Star Wars is about to become. And, you know, it's about to hit the country and this and that. But, yes, they they actually had a a plan initially to have. I don't know what the cover would look like, but it would have been uh, interesting that, you know, just another one of these things. Once Star Wars was released... Obviously, people became um, obsessed with it, just like just like I had. Uh, but in the manner that the movie was released, there was different versions of it in terms of formats. So you had your typical thirty-five millimeter, but then you had some theaters that were showing it in seventy millimeters. So you could see it was even wider and more beautiful, you know, bigger. And people were going to theaters, and people were chasing those theaters to the extent that because the movie was on the theaters for so long, some theaters actually invested in buying seventy millimeter equipment in order to be able to project the film in that manner, which would then generate more people coming to see it in that format. I I don't know if back then they charged more for that, like they do now with like 3D and stuff like that. But it's uh, very reminiscent of what Lucas did way later when the prequels were coming out, where he wanted it to be shown in digital theaters. And little by little, all the theaters started to change to digital around that time. And right now we're at a point where I think most are digital theaters. There's very little 35 millimeter prints being shuffled around anymore. Everything comes digitally, you know, in hard drives. I don't even, I think it might even come through telephone lines for all I know. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but it's just amazing how um, a, a movie like this 
pushes technology not only in the making of the movie, but in then in the presentation of the movie. And likewise, people that were really deep into audio, they would see the movie, again, you had your, your mono mix, your stereo mix, your Dolby mix, and then you had your six-track Dolby stereo mix, which is like the one that would go with the 70 millimeter. So you would be getting a different presentation if you're a real technical person that you can kind of compare the two and that is why there have been many reports that you know the mixes are a little different sometimes you'll hear an extra piece of dialogue or you won't hear a piece of extra dialogue sometimes the music will be louder here and less loud over there depending on which version of the film you see so yeah there was a lot of that going on too so by the time Miller gets involved full-time, this is after he's done being a consultant, more or less, and uh, he's now a full-time employee of Lucasfilm, thanks to Lippincott. One of the things that happened was they were working out of offices at Universal Studios, and you know, Lucasfilm, Lucasfilm, the business. And one of the reasons that for that is because you figure, wait a minute, Universal Studios, what does that have to do with Star Wars? Star Wars was Fox. Well, one of the reasons for that is because Lucas had a three-picture deal with Universal back when he made American Graffiti. And Universal had passed on Star Wars, so he kind of went and shopped it somewhere else. I believe the three-picture deal ended up with more American Graffiti being the second one, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Star Wars counted as the third picture because they're the ones who passed on it. So that's why you don't see Lucas directing a third film uh, at Universal at that point. So it's funny because the offices that they used at Universal ended up being the same offices that Ron Moore ended up using when he was doing the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. And apparently Greg Miller actually mentioned that to him once uh, when they had a meeting or something like that. Yeah, this is the same building where we were, you know, you're working in the building that basically was running Star Wars (laughs) at the time, which is really, when you think about it, there must be so much property in California, uh, you know, the old places where not only ILM existed, but different places where Lucasfilm, uh, all the different branches of Lucasfilm probably rented space or leased space and then moved on because they moved on so many times, to, you know, to different locations as the company grew and grew. One item that always is a little confusing that he clarifies in this book also is what was the deal with Fox? You know, that whole thing having to do with Lucas you know, getting the rights to the merchandise, you know, the whole secret to the wealth that came out of Star Wars. The way that it is described is that Fox gave Lucas $50,000 to write and $50,000 to direct in exchange for Lucas keeping control and ownership of the films and getting a percentage of the merchandising of the film. And every year, that percentage diminishes for Fox and increases for Lucas to the point where after a couple of years, Lucas will have complete 100% ownership of the merchandising. That was the key to the deal right there. He talks about a story having to do with how Kenner also, you know, aside from Star Wars, they were trying to get the rights to other films, you know, to you know, because they realized how successful this was becoming. And one of the companies apparently that was not allowed to make a deal with, according to Kenner, was Close Encounters for a Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters, because I guess they didn't want to have to compete with each other. However, he does talk about also about the famous early bird special. And even though the ongoing long story having to do with the early bird special is that 
the reason why it was put together in the first place was because they just did not have the capacity to make all this stock of action figures in time for not only for the movie to come out, but even for the Christmas, you know, the pre-Christmas rush sale. They basically, everybody basically had to wait till after Christmas, you know, to start getting their action figures. That's why the early bird special was put together. However, Miller says that his theory, and the, and he also says that he's kind of confirmed this with, with, you know, unnamed people, that the reason why the toys were not out was because Kenner did not want to have to compete with their $6 million man line that was right about to come out at the time. This was the, again, this is the big Christmas push that's coming. They already have all these super popular toys that are ready to be sold, and they didn't just want to have to have to compete with themselves by putting out a ton of Star Wars merchandise, thereby knocking down their one of their biggest, you know, cash cows, the six million dollar man and the bionic woman. So again, the theory is that they purposely delayed the Star Wars toys to be able to push all that six million dollar man merchandise out to the consumers and then go crazy with Star Wars. Another story that I kind of remember from other sources is that the deal that Kenner made for Star Wars was the licensing deal. And one of the aspects of the licensing deal is that Kenner would pay Lucasfilm, Lucas, $100,000 every year. On top of the percentage that they were going to get from the toys, there was a licensing royalty fee that they would have to pay every year. So what happens is, obviously, after the first three Star Wars films, Star Wars toys kind of die out. And at a certain point, Tonka Toys, I believe, buys Kenner. And Tonka, because there's no more Star Wars toys, at a certain point, they stop paying that royalty fee. So guess what? All of a sudden, in the 90s, when Hasbro jumps in the game and buys Kenner slash Tonka, and they want to now be the exclusive licensee for Star Wars toys that Lucas is revving up to do, you know, his, his at the time, if you remember, the prequels, and even before the prequels, the special editions. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, well, can we get back in business again? But guess what? The previous company had already lost the royalty fee exclusivity. So now, I believe, by the time that Hasbro gets re-involved in Star Wars again, they ended up paying, according to these numbers, close to a billion dollars in terms of how much it cost them to get back in the Star Wars game, when all they had to do at the time was continue to pay that $100,000 you know, yearly fee. They probably should have kept up with it. One of the many different things that Miller did for the fan club also was handling all the letters. People wrote letters in all different types in terms of they are writing to the cast and crew, they're writing to the creators, they're writing to the actors, they're writing to the characters. And depending on, on what they were writing, you know, they would kind of route those letters in those different directions. But there were some letters that would be answered by the fan club itself. And he says that, you know, one, again, this is kind of like a little um, trivia fact, is that if you ever got a picture Signed by Darth Vader, odds are it came from him. You know, if you wrote the fan club request, you know, usually a little kid, but I mean, 
who knows at this time. If it's a little kid, let's say, asking for an autographed picture of Darth Vader, Miller would have been the one that would have signed Darth Vader. And that's very different than when you get a signature from Dave Prowse, because Dave Prowse signs Dave Prowse is Darth Vader. Or if you have like a store appearance or something like that, a lot of times they had another guy named Kermit Eller, which I did a show about him uh, a while back, where he would be in complete outfit, in complete Vader outfit, and somehow with the costume and everything, he would have to sign. So that's kind of like an in-person character autograph that you get. Again, unless you're getting a, a James Earl Jones, you know, or, or some of the stunt people that have done the, the Vader role, the, all the previous ones. But if you just see uh, something that's signed Darth Vader, it's probably Miller. Another thing that he mentioned that they would get at the fan club a lot is just questions, just general questions. And every now and then, whenever he would have some sort of a get-together with Lucas or a meeting, he would kind of throw a few of those questions at Lucas just to see if he could answer those questions because it's one of those things that, you know, questions come up and, you know, you need an answer for them. And, and one of the most frequent questions was the whole issue of 12 parsecs. Now, granted, this is obviously way before the uh, the solo film that really goes into the whole issue of of um, doing the Kessel run and everything. But a lot of people would make the point that in the movie, parsecs is treated as a measure of distance as opposed to a measure of time or vice versa. And the way that Lucas answered the, the that particular question is that Han is basically lying because he's, he's kind of a little bit dumb, but he's bragging about it. He says that Chewie even understands that he's lying. But he says when you watch Obi-Wan's reaction to Han bragging about it, that's because Obi-Wan understands that Han is lying, that he's just exaggerating, and he's not even using the proper terminology about what he's exaggerating about. Again, you could call this canon or not, it's completely up to you. Miller was very tight, uh, or at least tighter, <laughs> out of all the top people from the top of the uh, production of Star Wars with Gary Kurtz all the way to the end where he ended up working for Gary Kurtz after he left Star Wars. He's done many projects with him. The book itself has a foreword by Gary Kurtz. So those guys, you know, those two were, were, were you know, became tight and tighter as, as, uh, as they exited the Star Wars world. And a very common question that they usually would be asked uh, at conventions or at other places is, why did Gary Kurtz leave? You know, you figure these guys are just making, they're printing their own money. They're making blockbusters one after another. Why did Gary Kurtz eventually take off after The Empire Strikes Back? And there's many reasons, and he even says in the books, and there's probably more reasons, but some of the main reasons, and I'm going to throw in a few of, you know, myself, a couple of theories based on a lot of information that I've been reading from, you know, many other sources, is that if you guys remember, Star Wars was financed by Fox. Fox put up all the money, and Gary Kurtz was the producer, so he was having these constant battles with Fox in order to get more money and to get more time to get, you know, to shoot more and trying to find money out of somewhere and doing this and doing that and, you know, putting up their own money at times to be able to buy a little more time, you know, all kinds of tricks that uh, a producer would do to protect his director so his director could get his, his particular vision done the way he wanted it done. However, in Empire, 
Lucas wanted to avoid all that, uh, so he put up his own money. So he was trying to become more independent, thereby becoming richer. You know, by putting up his own money, he would have to share less money with the studio. The problem then becomes that by doing that, Kurtz, as the producer, is protecting the director, but no longer was the director Lucas. Now it was Irving Kirshner. So that relationship changed. So in other words, it kind of became a little bit of... You know, the producer and the director trying to get more money out of Lucas in order to end up with a film that looks like what the director, Kirshner, wanted it to be. So by having that kind of role reversal, you know, with Lucas's responsibilities, Lucas and Kurtz became somewhat of adversaries. They had a, They now had an adversarial kind of relationship. After Empire finished... Lucas and Kurtz, you know, they just were not the same two people that they were on the previous film. Lucas thought that the movie could have been done a little cheaper, could have been done a little faster. They could have saved a lot more money, you know, and, and those kind of feelings, I'm sure, were major, major stumbling points in their relationship and in the decision as to whether or not to continue, you know, doing these films. The storyline had also changed because originally... From what I understand and from, from, from some of these uh, interviews and some of the information we get directly from Miller is that Lucas said that he originally was going to do 12 movies. And I remember that from old, old sources. And they never really in the past given you very solid reasons as to what made the numbers change from 12 to 9 to 3. What happened? Why was it that these things did not happen? Well, yeah, the first thing was supposed to be 12, but out of those 12, three of those were supposed to be offshoot films, films that did not have anything directly to do with those trilogies, those direct trilogies. So these were going to be kind of like one-off films, similar to, I think, what they did just now with films like Rogue One and Solo. They're in that universe, but they're not directly having anything to do directly with the trilogy being told. So when he cut those out of the way, all he had left was nine. But at a certain point, he decided, you know what? I don't think I can do nine right now. I think I can only do three right now. And that is exactly the information people got. All of a sudden, the plans changed from nine to three. And there were certain story ideas that he and Kurtz would always be talking about and mapping out on how, for example, Boba Fett was introduced an Empire. And the original plan was to have Boba Fett be the lead bad guy in the third film, meaning episode six. But once this was cut out, once the trilogies got mushed into only three films, then they said, all right, we can't do that because we have other storylines that need to be tied up. Storylines having to do with the redemption of Darth Vader, the further introduction of the Emperor. Those things that were supposed to kick in in its possible sequel trilogy were brought to Return of the Jedi, Episode 6, and jettisoned out was Boba Fett. So that was the biggest problem, was that they were laying... You know, they were kind of paving the road for Boba Fett to be the next big bad guy. And all of a sudden, it's like, no, we don't have time. Let's get rid of Boba Fett. And they, they get rid of him, you know, the Sarlacc pit. Let's bring in Vader and let's bring in the Emperor and go heavy on them as the lead bad guys. And that's what they ended up doing. So those kind of story 
changes were also part of the reason why Kurtz, you know, kind of didn't want to do it anymore. The other thing was also that around that time, Raiders of the Lost Stark had come out and it was being very, very successful. And at a certain point, I think Lucas mentions to Kurtz that he's really interested in the movies being more action oriented. People want to have that roller coaster ride. And the story really doesn't matter as much as opposed to just having fun, which Raiders has a lot of having fun. But, you know, I would argue that it's also a very smart film. But him wanting to more going that direction and be less story centric and more action centric. So that's another reason. And then the other reason that, that they do mention is that Kurtz felt that Lucas was being driven a little too much by the, I guess the term nowadays would be the toy etic or the, about the potential for being able to come up with toys having to do with a certain film where the toys are driving the story as opposed to the story driving the toys. So with Return of the Jedi, part of the story and part of the decisions made as to the characters might have had a little too much to do with what toys he wanted to create. Because again, remember, he's making a ton of money from these toys. So he wants to make sure that there's a very, very robust toy line coming, you know, with this next film. So there you have about four different reasons. Like I said, I'm sure there were more. Miller talks also about how he was the one to decide because of the items that would be given out during the fan club, you know, by joining, you would get a, a fan club package. You know, you pay your five bucks or whatever it is you paid back then, you would get certain items. He wanted to create something that was original because there was an earlier edict with the club that they wouldn't sell products because they didn't want to have to compete with the existing licenses. So the stuff that the club members would get would be for free and it would be stuff that's made for the fan club. However, he wanted to design something that wasn't just something that already existed. So he came up with a design and was able to go to Ralph McQuarrie and have Ralph McQuarrie draw this poster that I recently recently acquired of the Death Star Trench and you can see Luke on the cockpit and you can see some of those TIE fighters and, and, and Vader's fighter in the background, you know, they're kind of following Luke. And there's a, a little chapter in the book that talks about how, how much fun it was to watch, you know, to, to meet with McCrary and, and, and get him going on that, that particular idea and, and how beautiful it ended up looking, you know, when it was all said and done. There's a story about how the fan club newsletter, Bantha Tracks, which I remember them very clearly, had a contest on creating the name of the newsletter, because at first it was just the Star Wars newsletter. And uh, he talks about how they had a contest and, and there, there a couple of different people and the winner called it fan. He, the winner was the one that came up with Bantha Tracks. And he said the name Bantha Tracks came from the scene in Star Wars where Luke is examining all those dead Jawas and he's talking to Ben and he's talking about, well, it looks like it was same people. There's Gaffy Sticks and Bantha Tracks and blah, blah, blah. Bantha Tracks. That's how the name came about. Now, what's interesting is, as I mentioned a few seconds ago, uh, about the, how they couldn't sell certain items because they didn't want to compete with licensees. Later on, by the time you get to the end of the Empire and the beginning of Return of the Jedi, that's at the time where I pretty much joined the club. When I joined the club, it was it was an Empire mode. That's how I jumped on board the club. That's why I kind of missed most of what Craig Miller did. But... Around that time is when they did start to sell items and you can order and they were exclusively made items and stuff like that, that 
people could buy and yeah you can kind of say well yeah you're kind of competing with the licensees a little bit but it was great i remember it was just wonderful some of the stuff they offered on the subject of once again a, a questions asked and and miller being able to bring those questions to lucas the issue of why didn't chewie get a medal and uh, apparently the reason he gave <laughs> the reason he gave was that chewie in Kashyyyk, or at the time, they didn't, I don't even think they had a name, the Wookiee planet, I think they called it, they didn't believe in medals. However, you know, they, they were going to give him one, but they, they you know, they understood that that Chewbacca, you know, Wookiees would not accept a medal. Uh, it was part of their, tra- their, part of their tradition. However, that they did after the Yavin ceremony, they kind of all went to Kashyyyk to celebrate because they will celebrate, you know, Chewbacca being a hero too. So that's why he didn't get a medal. <laughs> It's like, okay, you know, whatever, you go with it or you don't. He tells a story about how when Kurtz went to Japan, uh, when he was promoting the beginning, when he was starting to promote a little bit about Empire Strikes Back, and, and this is at a point where they hadn't really even revealed the name of the film, that he had been asked so many times by so many different people in so many different other locations about the name of the film that he accidentally, or maybe on purpose, just said, I think we're going to call it The Empire Strikes Back. And according to Miller, the name kind of stuck. So after he said that publicly in Japan, back, you know, in in, in Star Wars land, <laughs> back in the ranch, they were now kind of like, yeah, I think that's the name we're going to stick with. Miller was also the producer when they had... If you guys remember, or if you guys just go to YouTube, there were all these offshoot things that were done with Star Wars, uh, between Star Wars and Empire, uh, primarily. There was the uh, the dreaded holiday special, there was the there was a um, a Donnie and Marie show, there was a, I think there was a Red Fox show, believe it or not, and there was also a Sesame Street show. Uh, appearance that uh, R2 and C-3PO did and he was the producer or he was there representing Lucasfilm during that shoot and he got to operate R2-D2's head because they I believe he says they had Anthony Daniels as C-3PO because Anthony did most of his because his voice obviously and, 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 and his movements but R2 was always a radio controlled character uh, to make these appearances so they had one person operating the body, you know, the, the the movements, but they needed a second operator to operate the head. So he was the head operator, uh, and he mentions that nowadays they can do it all in one. One person can operate everything. It's so, it's so much better now and more more advanced. But back then that was it was still a little difficult, and they needed two different people to do it. He also talks about how yes, and this is something that we might have heard before that part of the reason why. Han was put into Carbonite, story-wise, was because of the possibility of him not being able to come back for Return of the Jedi. Uh, He had not signed on at that time to do a third film, so that was going to be the escape way out in case something like that were to happen. In case he didn't sign on, they would be able to kind of write him off the story in that manner. And I remember he also mentioned that even Hamill was a little concerned that the line in the film of There Is Another, you know, between Yoda and Ben an empire uh, was there just in case something were to happen to him <laughs> and he didn't come back to the third film but even though i think he was under contract but if for whatever reason he decided to just say screw it and not show up or something for some weird reason but uh it was kind of like oh <laughs> does that mean that you know they can get rid of him too uh, and i guess they could another assignment that he got uh, to play producer for lucasfilm was during the underoos commercials oh my god 
he talks about how those things were shot in New York. And once again, he was the R2-D2 head operator for those. And he tells a story about how there is this two girls uh, that, that, you know, everybody's like doing dancing and singing, you know, in, in their underoos or whatever, if you guys remember the commercials. And they're all, they're all, again, they're all on YouTube if you ever want to see them. But he talks about how they were having trouble with one of the two girls. One, one girl was very professional. The other one wasn't as a professional. So they were having troubles kind of coaching her into, into doing the proper dance they wanted her to do or whatever. And the funny part or the, the, the trivia portion of this whole thing is the fact that the girl that was more professional, he was the, there was a blonde girl and a brunette girl. The blonde girl, uh, her name was Erica Elania, and she was also the actress on E.T. If you guys remember when Elliot kisses the girl in school and releases all the frogs, that's her. That's that same girl. But it gets even weirder. That girl then many years later, starred in Under Siege with uh, Steven Seagal, if you guys remember that film. She was uh, the, the the female lead on that film. And she was also on Baywatch, apparently. So it's really weird how some of these actresses or actors uh, had indirect tie-ins to Star Wars. He also goes through a story where, as a present to Starlog magazine, because Starlog, you know, obviously Starlog was it. It was the top sci-fi entertainment horror kind of magazine around at the time. Pre-internet, blah, blah, blah. You've heard me say it a million times. But as a favor to Starlog, Miller was able to help them write a couple of articles where he came up with these false rumors in order to kind of calm down other rumors that might be true. So he fed this, I mean, this is with, with Starlog's knowledge, of course, but he kind of fed Starlog all these different rumors about all these different permutations of what could happen. And this could be somebody's father, and this could be somebody's sister, and this could be somebody's uncle, you know, all kinds of weird stuff. And he's going to die, and she's going to die, and this person's going to, you know, all kinds of weird stuff. And apparently, Lucas liked it so much that he even told him, you know what, give them a few more, make up a couple of more, you know, crazy ideas like that, and send them over. And they did, and they ended up printing them as part of his article and again this is all before i got even involved in starlog so i don't see i don't remember these things this this is the type of thing that i have to go back and look for and you know one of those archival uh, websites that have all the starlog issues because i wasn't around uh, during that particular period another thing that i missed out on that i remember hearing a little bit about and again only i think it was again through starlog that that's the only place that it was promoted was miller produced a series of 800 numbers now 800 numbers uh that's something that really doesn't exist anymore it's that again pre-internet pre a lot of things where there was entertainment on the phone you could call an 800 number which is a free number 800 that's the area the, i mean i think 800 numbers still exist in terms of being able to call a certain company like customer service or stuff like that with an 800 designation but back then they would do entertainment or business so you could call and get a special message whether it's you calling santa or you're calling a wrestler or you're calling in this case you would call and you would get a message from different characters that are going to be appearing in Empire Strikes Back. So you would get a little preview of what's going to happen to these characters. And they were all recorded, from what I understand, during the looping sessions of Empire Strikes Back. And the only person they didn't get to record was Harrison Ford. And Miller ended up having to go to his house to record his lines in his house, in Harrison Ford's house. And 
it was a complete success. They were inundated with phone calls, and they had a problem because AT&T at the time being one of the only companies around, as opposed to now how you know that it's different now. You don't have one master monopoly kind of running everything. But AT&T was very upset because they were getting a bad publicity because the lines kept crashing. They had so many people calling, they kept crashing the system. So they ended up having to add more lines and kind of apologize for not being ready for to be able to handle so much volume on behalf of Lucasfilm. Uh, this way, you can kind of take the heat off the telephone company. Uh, and they promised not to advertise anywhere, which they didn't. The only place they even announced it was in a Starlog uh, article just once. But word got around and it was just inundated with people calling this number again those could be found in youtube if you uh if you look now going back a little bit to that whole thing of why did the plans keep changing so much and the other thing you have to also remember uh in terms of the films going from 12 to 9 to three you know and a lot of these people departing the company because of that Another thing you have to keep in mind, and it is not mentioned in the book, I believe. The book doesn't go into this, but there were other books that talk about this a little bit, and that is Lucas was having marital problems. I don't know how early he was having these marital problems, maybe as early as Star Wars. Most likely, definitely, by the time Empire Strikes Back rolls around, because remember, when he was doing Star Wars, he was directing, so he was like sucked into this movie 24 hours a day. With Empire, he was able to kind of take a step back and be able to kind of theoretically stay home a little more and, you know, he's got a wife. I don't even know if he had any adopted kids at that point yet. But he's still, you know, he, he's a workaholic from what I understand. So, you know, he's still getting very, very, very involved in this. And if you think about, you know, somebody saying, I have, a, I have 12 films in my head. I want to do these 12 films. And if the 12 films are anything like what he went through to do the first film or the second film, you can kind of tell that maybe, yeah, that's probably one of the reasons why his marriage started falling apart. Fast forward to Return of the Jedi. By the time Return of the Jedi is pretty much over, maybe halfway through shooting it or in post-production. I forget when, but it was a certain point where it was announced that he was about to get divorced. And that was part of the reason why at that time he stepped away from filmmaking for a while because he wanted to kind of raise his children. And the children ended up going with him, not his wife. I believe they're all adoptive. I think, I think they're all adoptive. But that is a kind of a mystery that I still haven't kind of cracked yet. I mean, I've read a number of books. I know that there are many he said, she said type of situations involved in that divorce. And there is uh, some kind of documentation about how his wife, Marsh, this is Marsha Lucas I'm talking about, started seeing somebody, somebody who actually, I think, even worked at Lucasfilm. And as a result of the divorce, which I'm sure she got a ton of money, but she didn't get the kids. And that is a mystery to this moment because usually most divorces end up with the wife getting the kids. But this is different. This ended up with him getting the kids. So this is a, a subject that I still have to do a little more research. I have a couple more books uh, that talk about that. But yeah, this is a kind of weird scenario. And But again, that could be part of this backdrop of why would he just change his mind? Why would he go from 12 to 9 to 3? It could have all been personal you know, trauma in his life, his marriage dissolving, and then ending up in this, having to scrap your plans for what you wanted to do in the future. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting thing. Again, they don't go into that <laughs> nitty gritty kind of stuff in the book. 
There is one thing that I never realized before, and I don't know if any of you guys ever saw it. Miller talks about how one of the special effects guys, and this happens all the time, they hide little Easter eggs, if you will. An asteroid that is really a potato, or a ship that's really a shoe, a sneaker. I remember hearing stuff like that. But in Empire, there is a shot, very noticeable shot. It was used in probably every single trailer. It was in the, I think it was in the Burger King commercial for the glasses. There's an asteroid that seems to kind of make a weird turn and smash right into a TIE fighter. And the TIE fighter behind the asteroid explodes into little, tiny little pieces. Well, he talks about, and he has it in his book, he has screenshots of how uh, one of the special effects guys animated hand-drawn animation. After you see that explosion, you actually see the pilot of the TIE fighter flying off the wreck and the exploding TIE fighter. However, the fire and explosion that consumes that area eventually consumes the pilot too and the and the pilot is on fire it lasts maybe a second and i i have to try to see it i want to try to see it on my blu-ray copy or maybe on on disney plus but you have to go frame by frame unless you kind of catch it yeah in other words you have to look for it and from what i understand it is on the bottom right of the explosion where you see a hand-drawn animation of a pilot kind of flying off into space and catching fire. Real weird stuff. Again, these are things that I always say this, like you could be watching this for the hundredth time and you'll notice something new. Well, here's one you can uh, you can look for if, you're, uh, if you've never seen it before, because I hadn't. But the main question that does not get answered in the book, as far as I'm concerned, is why did Craig Miller leave Lucasfilm? Now, in the book, he does mention something about how if this book is successful, he wouldn't mind maybe writing another book about the other work that he's done after Star Wars. Because he's done stuff for, he said he's done stuff for um, The Dark Crystal, the movie The Hand. He worked on a ton of films as a publicist and that sort of work. Uh, And then he hopped over as a writer. He wrote for one of the Ghostbuster animated shows and some other animation he's worked. So he's had a different kind of career. And he mentioned that, yeah, that's the type of thing that he would want to cover on a second book is the post-Star Wars stuff. But in the book, he never really goes deep into why he left. So I started digging around for interviews and I found an interview he gave on another podcast. I think it's called it's called The Junk Man. And this is a guy that does all kinds of toy related eh, reviews and looking at the history and and uh, you know shorter video you know he's 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 he does he's got a different style uh, but it's all on camera which is really cool but anyway he he got to interview him earlier this year and he does talk about because that's the one of the questions that comes up uh, i guess with most people reading the book is well why did you leave because you know this guy was like the ultimate fanboy he was he was a, a fan of star wars who ended up working in star wars and then it works on Empire, and you're like, my God, you you must be like losing your mind of, of how cool this is. Now, granted, I don't know how cool it is while you're actually doing it, and and you know my whole thing about you don't really want to know how the sausage is made because it sounds like he did have a lot of there were a lot of issues, you know, as 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 working you know working for a company and. Lucasfilm became more and more corporate as you kind of went along. The company switched buildings, like I mentioned, many times, so they had to remove people left and right. By the time he left, I think they they went through about four moves. Maybe a fifth one was on the horizon, and I don't even think that was the last one. But he did mention on one of those interviews that, yes, one of the reasons or one of the main reasons was 
that they were about to go move up north. And that would have brought him way, 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 way far, too far from Los Angeles where he lives. So he would have had to relocate. But he says that, that wouldn't, he wouldn't have minded so much. But the problem was that he had already been told at the time that they were not going to do nine films, that they were going to do just one more film. So he kind of felt that for the kind of job that he was doing, to have to uproot his life and move north for one more movie wasn't worth it because that he, he felt that after he was done with that movie, he would have to then just kind of remove and relocate back to Los Angeles and kind of try to restart his career again in a, you know, in the, in the area he just came from. So that's when he kind of cut ties and went in the Gary Kurtz way. So it was kind of also, I think personally, I think it was kind of, kind of like one of those situations where somebody who's big in the company, let's say leaves and they take with them some people, some people kind of leave with him. And in Gary Kurtz's case, he went on to do the Dark Crystal with Jim Henson. So that might have been a very attractive thing for Miller to say, you know what? Maybe we should kind of switch gears now and let's go with Gary and let's try to do something different. So that's my theory as to, you know, between his answer and that information, I think that's more kind of like where it went and why it went in that direction. But this is a great book. Like I said, this has tons and tons of these kind of stories. And they're not your typical, typical stories. Just like he promises in the beginning of the book. He's not going to just retell things you might have heard a hundred times. Granted, there are a couple here there that I've heard before. But it depends on how nutty of a, of a fan you are. If you're not that crazy of a fan, you might not know a lot of these stories. But I was happily surprised by a lot of these behind-the-scenes stories. So... I definitely, definitely recommend this book. He's on Facebook, so if you friend him on Facebook, you can kind of see a lot of uh, these stories being kind of retold every now and then. He was a good friend, I think, with with Lippincott, and I remember seeing his name, you know, when I used to follow Lippincott, and Craig Miller would show up, and I'm like, that name sounds very familiar. And then his book came out, I'm like, okay, here we go, that's who this guy is. But yes, definitely recommend it. You can collect them all! You are a toy! Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each, one to display, one to open, and one just in case. Okay, for today's poster of the month, we are looking at Clash of the Titans. Well, a little background on Clash of the Titans. I might have given you this once before when we talked about the action figures. This was the first time that I had seen a Ray Harryhausen film in the theater, at least here in the U.S., I remember seeing the commercials. I remember being super interested in it. I might have seen some of the other films, maybe on television. I don't remember if I seen any of the other ones in the movies. Possibly Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger I might have seen in the movies. But background, even if it was in Uruguay, which actually I think it was, it wasn't so much that I was a Ray Harryhausen fan. I became a Ray Harryhausen fan by watching all the Ray Harryhausen films, and eventually 
getting to this one, you know, that is actually coming out in the theater. And I remember this came out in 81 and I was already here maybe about two years by the time this movie came out more or less. So, you know, between television and I don't know, maybe video, but I don't even think I had a VCR back then. Maybe cable? I don't, I honestly don't remember. And most likely it would have been just television, just reruns, repeats, channels like Channel 5 or Channel 11 in New York that on a weekend would show old films and that kind of thing. That might have been one way of me catching up with the Ray Harryhausen library, if you will. But anyway, this is one that I saw, and I distinctly remember seeing it. I remember the action figures. I remember the toy line. It was something that connected with me, and it was like, wow, this is a pretty cool film. The poster that I'm talking about, the poster that I actually bought, and the one I have is a reproduction, of course. I don't have the original one. I believe it's considered the B poster. The original poster, the A poster for the film, was actually done by the brothers Hildebrand, the ones who did that iconic Star Wars poster also ironically, that did not get used as a one-sheet, at least not here in the U.S. The original poster, the first poster that came out, the A poster, if you will, I believe, would be considered, is very, very different. I mean, it has some of the similar characters, not as many as this one. This one has a lot more. But uh, the original one has a gigantic Medusa head all the way in the top, kind of red from the glowing fires. You have uh, Pegasus kind of flying off to the side, and you have Perseus and Andromeda off to the right. Now, what's funny about Perseus and Andromeda is that at least Perseus, to me, doesn't seem to be dressed exactly like he was in the movie. Andromeda, yeah, she's kind of dressed that way. But they really don't look that much like the act. There's an air, I would say, of Harry Hamlin, you know, in that drawing. There is there. It's it's there. It's a little bit. But it's not perfect. But the actress, let's see. Eh, hard to say. The actress, it could be any woman there next to him, for all I know. But that's that original one, like I said. It is a gorgeous poster. It is not, I think. I'm most certain that it is not the poster uh, that was there when I saw the film. I don't know exactly about the history of when they switched from one to the other. I don't know if this was more used for international releases. It's possible. I've seen some that are a combination of this and the B poster, the one that I actually do have. So it's, um, you know, this is this is one that's, it, it's still very nice, but it, it's just not my favorite. With that said, there is an Italian poster that I recently found on the internet uh, that I'm trying to get my hands on that is a gorgeous poster. It is just a gorgeous looking poster. It has a very, probably the most lifelike version of Perseus and he's got his red robe and he's holding up Medusa's head and it's the proper looking head. It looks, it looks to me like this poster was made after somebody actually watched the whole movie and was able to draw and color things the right way. But it is very Italian, especially if you look at the princess tied to the rocks. It has an extra layer, if you will, of sexiness that you don't get on the other two posters. It is a very traditional Italian form of art. And even Pegasus looks fantastic. What's really, really strange is the fact that the sky and the clouds opening up and the, the shafts of light coming through look almost identical to the poster that I do have right here. 
it's as if they took the best things of everything. They took the best things of the poster, the original poster, the best things from the movie, and they d designed their own poster. And I really wouldn't have mind if this was the poster uh, that they would have came up with, you know, for the American version. Because even the the sword he's holding looks more like the real sword. The shield that he has behind his back, granted, it's kind of out of order in terms of how they're showing you these things, but it's a gorgeous poster. My favorite one is the one I have here, which is the, you have a, a, a drawing, a portrait of the Kraken coming out of the water. You see the princess off to the side she, as he's chained to the rocks and you see Perseus flying down on top of Pegasus uh, holding the Medusa head and Boo Boo the Owl is up there. And the funny thing is that Perseus also has uh, the sword and the helmet, which Technically, that's wrong because by this point in the movie, he already, he had already lost a lot of these items. He was, I think, he was down to just the Medusa head. That's all he had left, I think, pretty much. And if you really, really look closely, the sword and the helmet don't really match the ones from the movie. The sword, the hilt of the sword, the the guard of the sword is pretty straight, and he has a curved one in the movie, a curved blade guard and the helmet here looks more like a almost like a roman helmet in the movie it's a little flatter is not as fancy looking like this looks like it's made out of completely out of gold the one in the movie is is pretty shiny but it's it's more flat it doesn't have that high of a whatever you call that thing on top and it actually has eye slits the, the one that they used in the movie where you could kind of put it low enough to be able to see through it. But here it looks more like a traditional one. So it, it's interesting. To me, it looks as if they didn't have the proper art. You know, Boo Boo matches, the Medusa head kind of matches, but for some reason, those two items looks like they didn't have the proper reference material when they drew it. You also see these shafts of light, of sunlight coming from the clouds, you know, uh, shining on Perseus. Over to the right, you also have something that's a little unusual, I guess you could say, uh, for an American poster, at least by the time we get to the 1980s. This is something that's a little more common before, the 70s or before. You have a whole bunch of boxes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight boxes of all the stars of the film. You have Harry Hamlin on top. Then you have uh, Judy Boker. She was Andromeda. Uh, Merges Baradith. Maggie Smith. Ursula Andress, Claire Bloom. Underneath you have Cian Phillips. I believe she plays Andromeda. And then finally in the bottom you have Laurence Olivier, who is Zeus in the film. Then in the lower third or the lower quarter more of the poster, you have the title Clash of the Titans and then all the credits underneath. And it says, opens June 12th at a theater near you. So you could kind of say that this, even though it's labeled as a B poster, it is a kind of a coming soon poster, but it's funny because usually the coming soon posters don't have all the credits. Plus, again, to me, this art, this particular art is the art that I remember the most. It being on, on, on the novel, on the album. It, it seems to me that this was the more preferred of the art that was made for the film. Now, this piece of art was done by Dan Goose. G-O-O-Z-E-E. -E. So I don't know if it's Goose or Goosey. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. 
And from what I understand, he was an ex-Disney Imagineer uh, as part of his credentials of how he ended up, you know, in a capacity to be able to draw movie posters. He also worked at the magazine, if you guys remember it, uh, Famous Monsters, where, again, his, his artistic uh, skills were used to draw a lot of the, uh, of the art in that magazine. And he is credited with a number of very famous films as the artist of the posters, including The Poseidon Adventure, The Towering Inferno, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Crocodile Dundee, The Mission, Moonraker. I remember Moonraker. That's a very memorable poster. Octopussy and a View to a Kill. Plus, he also did a lot of work, a lot of work for the television show Battlestar Galactica, the original Battlestar Galactica. There's tons and tons of uh, conceptual work uh, that he's done, sketches and all kinds of stuff. It's on, you know, there's a couple of pages on the internet that you could find that goes into all that sort of thing. A lot, I mean, an amazing amount of work. Now, he also did a preliminary poster for Star Wars. Now, this is at a time where a lot of artists are brought in to kind of do some conceptual work, and they're hired as, as a one-off, really. And then from there, they pick which artist they want to go a little deeper with. And that's how you end up with the final posters for Star Wars. And he was one of them. He was one of the people that had a poster. And I'll, I'll show you a, a little sample of what it looks like on our cover slate. He did this poster of... Basically, Luke and Leia are swinging on a rope from, let's say, right to left. Uh, you see Vader on the opposite end, and Leia is shooting as they're swinging, and, and there's an explosion on the bottom left corner. And then you also see a whole slew of stormtroopers, like a lot of stormtroopers. I don't remember seeing that many stormtroopers really in Star Wars together in that manner, but it's kind of, it's supposed to, I guess, signify like an army of stormtroopers. In the background, you do see what could be the Death Star or a planet. I can't really tell too much. It's, 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 it's a little hard to see. And you do see X-Wings and TIE Fighters battling you know, uh, having a space fight in the background. Yeah, this is a very action-oriented poster. There is a version of this poster also that has R2-D2 and C-3PO, I believe, on the bottom right. And it is kind of unusual that they would have chosen to remove those for the final usage, I guess, of that art. This Original one also with R2 and C-3PO, if you look at Leia's face, it looks also a little different. It looks like she's looking in a different direction almost. Again, this poster was never used as a one-sheet for, uh, you know, the movie theater. However, there was a picture that I found on the internet of it being used as a newspaper ad for Star Wars, as if this is the art they were using to promote it on a newspaper for the movie theater, you know, listing. So that's kind of odd that they would decide, you know, to be that specific as to which art. And I know that I've seen, they, they use a lot of different art when promoting these films. But it's really odd that they would go with a picture that wouldn't even make it into a poster to promote the film. Uh, this is the type of thing that usually ends up being more of an international thing. Because, again, they always keep the rights to these posters. But, yeah, for some reason, this one didn't make it 
you know, in terms of the, the final <laughs> posters, but it is a very good rendition, I guess, if you will. It's very of it, of its time, of its style, and it kind of fits this particular artist. You could see, you know, his style all over the place with something like this. But like I mentioned before, if I ever think of this movie, and if I ever think of a poster, this is the poster. It's super action-oriented, the poster. You have it all there. It's the climax of the movie. It tells you just about everything you want to know about what you're dealing with. One of my favorites, uh, as far as the uh, Ray Harryhausen library goes, I really wish he would have done more, but I know the man was getting very old by that time. But... Art for this film, to me at least, the other part of the art of the film that I usually like to evaluate is the action figure art. A lot of times action figures will use a picture. Star Wars, typical of this, for at least the, the original trilogy, it's all pictures of, you know, the actors and costumes and that sort of thing in character. But a movie like Clash of the Titans, I distinctly remember the action figure cardbacks and the art that was so cool looking that always to me became just as attractive as the figures themselves doesn't always happen to me i remember when star wars force awakens came out and they did artist renderings of the characters and i really really admired that i forget but i find i in one of these past shows that i've done years ago at least five years ago I actually found the actual agency, advertising agency that was hired to do all that art, which is, again, this is part of this modern thing, you know, modern times that we live now where most of this work now is done by agencies who handle tons of clients and they'll take the entire, you know, the entire line for a film, for example, and they'll do everything. They'll do every piece of art in-house for whatever, international, local, you name it, banners, anything you could think of, preview posters, one sheets, character profile posters. You see those a lot these days. They do everything. This is a time, 1981, where things were a little different. The creators of the film, specifically the studio of the film, they would, depending on how potentially successful this film is going to be, Again, this is all after Star Wars, trying to recreate that model of publicity and merchandising and all that stuff. They would hire 10 different people and they would get 10 different uh, results. And then they would pick a few of those and continue with them. And they would keep the extras for, hey, you never know, we might need this art for something else. So, yeah, this was a different time. And when it came to the action figures, yeah, same thing. The action figures, they went in a completely different direction. For the action figure art, they hired a gentleman called William George. And William George worked uh, for a company that did a lot of that sort of art, action figure art. And to his credits, he's done a ton of He-Man, Masters of the Universe, toy line art. Some of them shows up in books. Some of them shows up in the toys, in the boxes. There's a lot of work that he's done. And it's that kind of, um, I don't know, how should we say it? Like, um, it's like a Conan-ish kind of thing. I mean, if you look at He-Man, it's, it's, there's a lot of Conan in He-Man. But 
here, same thing. The art that was used for Clash of the Titans, you're dealing a lot with that. You're dealing, you know, either Greek or Roman-esque kind of uh, figures, muscular, shirtless usually, beautiful women, you know, uh, sword and sorcery kind of stuff. That's uh, the style that you, you that I do still remember from those cards. Now, unfortunately, uh, the, that toy line didn't go too far, didn't go beyond its first wave of whatever it is that who knows what they were planning. But another place you might have seen his artwork is Battlestar Galactica action figures, the original ones. Again, if you think about it and if you look them up, yep, the action figure line for Battlestar Galactica didn't use pictures, it used art. And this was all part of uh, William George's work. So it's really interesting how... You know, you get all of this art pertaining to one film. And unfortunately, Clash of the Times is not the type of movie that you can buy these days a book specifically, you know, on the art of. You got to have a either a Marvel film that's super popular or a Star Wars film to get a specific art of film book. Sometimes you get it like Tron or some of the uh, Christopher Nolan's uh, films. They'll do an art of book. But this would be a a fantastic book if they were to put one together. I know there's a couple of Ray Harryhausen books. And I've been getting uh, lately a couple of books of his. But they're usually, you know, movie or career-wide descriptions of of what he's done. Uh, They don't usually specify on one thing. But... My God, there's so much art in this type of thing, especially in the old style. Again, you're not dealing with computers. This is all stop motion uh, animation. So you start off with art. Then you have some kind of a clay uh, sculpture. Then you have the actual armature built, you know, to be filmed models and that kind of thing. But it's really it's really nice how some of these artists are able to um, project with whatever information they do have. And from looking at this poster, I think that he must have had quite a bit of information here because it is so accurate. To me, this is like very, very accurate. Other than the little mistake, I guess, I of, of having certain weapons that he didn't have at that point, I think it is extremely accurate as far as it goes. And this is, again, one of those films that even though they made a remake out of this, and the remake was pretty good. You know, it was, it was all right. I liked it. This is the type of film that I don't mind visiting every now and then. It is, it's it still, it, it fits with the, that particular style uh, of stop motion uh, films. Not my favorite. Uh, I still root for Jason uh, and the Argonauts as my, my all-time favorite Harryhausen. But this one probably would come in second, I think. And the fact that at the time, it was so much more modern. The character of Calabas for example, where you go from stop motion to an actual actor in in prosthetics. You know, there's a lot of cool stuff that they did back then with that, which to this day, I I still love, you know, what a a great accomplishment they had done. And this poster, again, typical, iconic, and I finally have it in my collection. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We started off with Star Wars Memories, a kind of behind the scenes making of not only Star Wars, but merchandising of Star Wars and fan club from Star Wars, all those other, you know, movie and non-movie related aspects 
of the Star Wars saga that you know we are such big fans of. And in this particular case, being able to hear it from somebody who had a completely different point of view and was able to kind of watch and see how the trilogy, at least the first two movies, progressed and how the fans were able to be you know, kept up to date on things and part of a group, a fan club. Uh, Really, really good book. And then we hopped over and looked at a classic poster, at least for me, of Clash of the Titans, the original Clash of the Titans, where we were able to look at many different pieces of art from the film that was used in the merchandising of the of the film. But the main poster that I recently purchased, absolutely love it. And I'm very happy that it's part of my collection. So on behalf of everybody here, thanks for listening and we will see you soon here at GeekFest France. Bye-bye everybody. In an ancient age before recorded time, men were measured by their courage and women by their beauty. Mighty gods ruled the universe, and fear and destruction covered the world. It was a time of darkness, when only the force of love could bring back the light. Now, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents Clash of the Titans, a sweeping legend of a golden age, soon the motion picture epic of our time. Enter into the wondrous world of Perseus and Andromeda, a world of passion and power, beauty and bravery, mystery and magic. A world that transcends fantasy and leaps into legend. One courageous man rides between an angry heaven and the fury of hell on earth. He rides a winged stallion across the sky. He rides to save the one who owns his heart. He rides towards wonders no man has ever seen and terrors no man has ever faced. Clash of the Titans, starring Laurence Olivier, Maggie Smith, Ursula Andress, Burgess Meredith, Claire Bloom, and introducing Harry Hamlin as Perseus and Judy Bowker as Andromeda. It will touch you, shock you, dazzle your senses, and sweep you to the limits of your imagination. Clash of the Titans. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2020. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long.